Peace, everybody, and welcome to another episode of A Long Way from the Block. I'm your host, Anthony Thomas. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and much thanks for all the continued support. My next guest is the Executive Director of Alliance San Diego. Alliance San Diego is a community organization whose mission is to build collective power to create an inclusive democracy. Alliance builds power by developing leaders, engaging communities, advocating for policies, and protecting civil and human rights. Before joining Alliance, she was the field and policy director of the ACLU of San Diego and Imperial Counties. Prior to that, she practiced immigration law before administrative, federal district, and appellate courts. A graduate of UC Berkeley Law, University of Texas, LBJ School of Public Affairs, and Stanford University. She has dedicated her professional life to protecting civil rights and advancing social justice. She's been on the front line of human rights issues for many years. She's also a highly respected leader and organizer here in the San Diego community. Please welcome Andrea Guerrero. All right, Andrea, thank you so much for taking the time to come on my show. I'm so excited to have a dialogue with you. Uh, I wanted to first start off with a little bit of your background. Could you tell us just where you're from originally? Anthony, I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) Uh, Where I am originally from is Mexico City. My parents met during the 1968 Olympics. My father's Mexican. My mom's American. My mom was working as a translator, and my father was working on the Olympic Village. Mm. And so it is befitting that I'm the product of their love, a love that was forged across borders, and I eventually came to work to create a world where those borders are broken down and and we can all live together with dignity. Um, But my my original start was in Mexico City. Mm, Okay, yeah. And so... You know, I know your brother as well. You do. And so as children with your parents, did they give you a sense of culture, of history, of the mentality that you can actually do whatever you want, that you can fight for justice and fight for change? Was that instilled at an early age? Absolutely. I remember coming to this country when I was five years old and the first thing that I did was participate in a march for the Equal Rights Amendment, which was still alive then. And uh, every election year, my mother would have me knocking on doors and Mm -hmm. she would send me to all the houses that said no solicitation. (laughs) (laughs) And my brother, I remember my brother asking, what does that mean? She said, well, that means that's the door you knock on to encourage people to go vote. Mm. So it was a right and a privilege that our family had. My father didn't have it uh, for some period of time, but mm-hmm. we, my mom had it, and then we as a family nurtured it. And, of course, then I came of age and I was able to, to vote. I had the privilege of citizenship because of my mother. Mm-hmm. A lot of my family members did not have that same privilege. Right. I never took it for granted Mm. So were there other people besides your mom and dad, like an uncle, a grandfather, a mentor, a teacher that kind of helped you also see that there's 
things going on in the world that need to be changed and that you can actually affect those changes? Absolutely. I think my parents certainly were formative. They both came out of a, a social justice frame of mind. My father in Mexico, my mother in the United States. Uh, I had grandparents who had lived through troubled times. My um, grandparents in Mexico through the Mexican Revolution. My grandparents here through depression, mm-hmm. World War. And I, I think no one took anything for granted, um, especially dignity, that that can be taken away from you or attempted uh, to be taken away from you either because of your forced migration mm-hmm. or um, your economic circumstances. And I remember my grandmother used to say, the only thing that people can't take away from you is your education. And mm-hmm. so that was mm-hmm. instilled in me early on. Right, right. And so when you came to the States... Did it always have like a pull of what was going on back where you originally came from? So you always had that connection from Mexico City, the culture, the history that's going on there. So did you feel like you were always kind of moving in two different worlds? I think being a person who's bilingual, bicultural, binational, biracial, you always have one foot here and one foot Mm, there. And there's a saying... Soy de aquí y de allá. I'm from here and from there. Mm-hmm. And or no soy de aquí ni de allá. I'm not from here or right, from there. Right. It's that feeling of do I belong and if so where or maybe I don't belong anywhere. So I think as a as a mixed identity person, I've had to forge my own sense of self. And as I've come to know other people who are mixed identities, it's a share. It seems to be a shared experience. Mm. But yes, absolutely. My heart is always in multiple places. Right, right. And so you went to uh, elementary, middle school, high school here. Here, that's right. In I San was, Diego. Uh, in the United States. United my, States. My, okay. um, my family moved around a lot, mm-hmm. so I, I think that's part of my forged experiences. I, I don't think I was in any one home for more than two years. Okay. In any one city for more than four. So. Um, I lived in the Pacific Northwest, the Northeast, mm-hmm. and um, probably the most formative years were in Texas. Okay, okay. So I'm interested because you're a lawyer by trade, mm-hmm. right? And since I've known you, I've only known you as a lawyer and doing the work that you do. So I'm wondering when you were in grade school and middle school and high school, was there ever a time where you sort of did the things that you weren't supposed to do at any point and kind of got off the path a little bit? Or were you driven and focused all the way through? I, Because I had a challenging childhood because we were moving around a lot because we fluctuated in our economic circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I was determined to be independent and self-reliant from oh. an early age. Yeah. And so my mission was always to um, to figure out how to do that, and I saw education as the pathway through. Um, but I always uh, had a problem with authority. Uh-huh. <laughs> I always challenged it, yeah. um, and in part it was because I saw how authority treated my own family uh, okay. and, uh, and and myself and my brother and. 
you know, my father would say, I don't bow to any president or any pope. And that was his way of saying, mm. I and we are just as worthy as anybody else, no matter how any of us are treated. Mm. Wow, that's interesting. That's a good quote. I like that. <laughs> so was there a, an incident that you could remember either through growing up or in your high school years that triggered you to say, you know what, this is what I'm going to do and this is where I'm going to push my energy towards, whether it was a, mm-hmm. a political thing or just a news you know, incident mm-hmm. or a global incident or anything? You know, I think it was a summation of a lot of small incidents that forged my desire to change the world. It was a sense of injustice wherever wherever it was happening. Sometimes it was happening me, to me directly. Sometimes it was happening to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that my freshman year in college was probably the most defining moment. Um, yeah, I walked into my freshman dorm and my freshman roommate said, uh, oh, thank goodness you're not a spick. And I said, um, by Mexican American, <laughs> do you mean Mexican American? Yes, then I guess I am. And she and her parents then asked for her to be removed from the room and said they were not paying tuition for her to be living with such a person. And I was alone at the time, and it was the most challenging year of my life because mm-hmm. uh, the, the solution was not to remove her, but to have her stay there so she could grow. Uh, <laughs> and interesting. so I had to, um, I had to live with, with somebody who was engaging in macro and microaggressions right. all year long and really had to find the fortitude in myself to, to, um, to find my path. Yeah. And that's pretty early. That's young. Yeah. At your freshman year to be thrown right into that. Right. Yeah. yeah why not? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you go to college. Originally, you go to Berkeley or to Stanford. Stanford. You go right. to Stanford straight out of high school. Yes. My college um, application plan was get the hell out of Texas. Mm-hmm. And I did that successfully. Yeah. So, yes, I landed in California and I thought that was the holy land. Yeah. Uh, Found that that there were a lot of challenges here too, mm-hmm. beginning with that first day. But I yeah. was, I, I've uh, come to find that uh, California is the place where I believe I belong. Well, it's interesting because you have such a foundation in Texas, and so much work here in California, and both of those states are dealing with major issues that you are tackling today. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's. It's kind of interesting that those are the two main places where you you know you you kind of formulated your work and then put your work into motion. That's right. They're both border states, mm-hmm. and I think you know the borders that I uh, that I encompass internally are comfortable places to be. So I de allá, and so being in a border state where I can think about yeah. what it means to be in a place. With lines that divide right. uh, and bridges that build, yep. those are comfortable places for me to be. Yeah. Except I'm really much happier here in California. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so at Stanford, uh, which we all know is a very, very prestigious college, was there sort of a, a feeding ground 
for you to manifest your ideas? Did, did you feel comfortable at Stanford moving in, in the direction that you were actually moving in? I was engaged in causes and social justice, but I hadn't really hit my stride. I was um, dealing with a lot of identity issues there, <sighs> starting with my freshman year. <clears throat> I surrounded myself with lots of different kinds of people, so I was in the learning mode. Uh, people from all over the world, international students, students who I was less familiar with, communities from communities I was less familiar with, like uh, in particular Asian communities, mm -hmm. which I hadn't really been exposed to. Uh, so I was really coming to appreciate the richness of of the diversity, the fabric of our country, and. It wasn't really until later, until law school, that I that I really set on my path. Mm. Okay, so you're in. You you start to get into law school at Stanford, and that must just be take up so much space and in, in your head and energy and everything. Do you do you just dive all the way into it? Are you so passionate about you want to be a lawyer that you just go all the way in, or were you you know kind of seeing what it was like and maybe figuring it out, or were you all the way? No, you know, I didn't realize that I wanted to pursue law until I was 26 years old. So I went, oh, to, wow. I went to Stanford. I graduated with an international relations degree. I went on to policy school back in Texas, ironically, at the University of Texas in Austin. Uh, so I guess I didn't get the hell out of Texas, did I? <laughs> um, but then I worked for the state of Texas for two years, and I worked in a in an office uh, where I was liaising with the four border Mexican states that border Texas. And I was down along the border a lot, and I saw that the the machismo of of uh, Texans was uh, only outmatched by the machismo of the the Mexicans, and so <laughs> I uh, saw, looked around, and the only women that were getting any respect were lawyers on uh, both sides of the border. Yeah. And I said, I want me some of that, and that's when I applied to law school. And I thought I would be an environmental lawyer because that's I was working on the natural resource issues. But at the time, California was in turmoil. It was it was the time the the period of uh, former Governor Wilson, and it was the anti-immigrant, um, anti-Spanish language era, uh, anti-affirmative action, mm. and I was drawn to all those fights. Wow. So I do want to ask you just some things about being a lawyer and the law. You know, most of us on the outside, we learn about all this through movies, right? And when I was a kid, I actually wanted to be a lawyer because I was a lawyer movie fanatic. Wow. Yeah, I watched. It's good to know about I you. I used to watch so much is lawyer movies. Mm -hmm. So, But most of us are seeing it from the outside. And I've been to courts and mm -hmm. watched cases, and it's nothing like it is on television. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering if you can kind of give us a little synopsis of what goes on behind the scenes as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Is it just so much paperwork or is mm -hmm. it, is there court stuff that is like so exciting for you and you can't wait to get in there and go back and forth with the other lawyers and mm -hmm. stuff like that? I'm just, I'm just wondering if you can kind of paint this picture of what it's like on the inside. 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think there are different kinds of lawyering. Mm-hmm. I was a courtroom lawyer. I got into immigration law, and uh, that is a very court-intense kind of law uh, in immigration defense work. But it's a lot of reading and a lot of writing and a lot of preparation. So, you know, nine parts preparation, one part lawyering, uh, (laughs) and a lot of working with people. And I think what I didn't expect being a lawyer was the uh, amount of interpersonal um, communication that I would have to handle and and also accompaniment of the families that I was working with, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. accompanying them through what is a pretty traumatic period in their life. And, um, you know, because you are a lawyer, uh, you're often asked for everything else. So in right. a given appointment, it's not just about my case, it's about I can't read this paper that the school district sent me or (laughs) what do I do about this business problem that I'm having and Mm -hmm. um, so managing, helping people navigate through a a country when the language might not be their own or they're not familiar with the place that they're living in. Well, the language part, I'm glad you said that. That seems to be such a major issue. I mean, just going to the DMV and yeah. I speak English <laughs> with no problem and I watch people struggle just at the DMV. Mm-hmm. I couldn't imagine the struggles of somebody's child not wanting to go to prison and not being right. able to explain it right. Just, right. just little things like that. Just the language part is such a critical part of it. Absolutely. So much is lost in translation. And I think that was one of the biggest challenges of being a a lawyer, especially because I was handling a lot of asylum cases where the words matter. Yes. Every word matters. And part of the way that you win an asylum case is is, is by conveying your story in a, in a way that um, a judge finds credible. And, um, and there would always be an interpreter there. And I handled cases from all over the world, but especially with the Spanish language cases, I would um, pay special attention to how the words were being interpreted mm-hmm. and uh, wanting to make sure the judges understood the depth uh, of yeah, the experience, yeah, yeah. the depth of the fear, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, words matter. Right, right, yeah. And you always wanted to be a defense lawyer? Not all, I mean, probably, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it in that way. I didn't know what I would use a law degree for. I, again, I wanted the respect (laughs) of of, uh, becoming a lawyer. But yes, when I got my law degree, I I was drawn to the migrant experience because of my own family and also because of what I was seeing around me here in San Diego. This is where I ended up coming back to because this is where my father was. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's always been a, a, a work of passion for me to be an immigration defense lawyer, and and then in the work that I do now, uh, which is less courtroom, uh, more public advocacy, mm-hmm. uh, same passion, just different venue. Right, right. And so as a lawyer, do you see, I, I want to talk about like the history of law mm-hmm. and how it's set up. As a lawyer, do you see 
the law as something that at its origins was coming from a good place mm. and has gone off track mm-hmm. and you're kind of part of fixing that? Mm-hmm. Or do you think from its origin, it was always flawed? That is a great question. Here's what I think. <laughs> I think that in 1776, mm-hmm. the founding fathers hit on something that was good. It was a moment of enlightenment. Uh, they, they understood that there were self-evident truths that mm. all of us are created mm-hmm. with the inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm. I think 15 years later when uh, folks were writing the Constitution, they messed it up. And uh, we had this promise that went unfulfilled. And while they might have gotten some things right, like balancing power across three branches of government, what they didn't get right is uh, the treatment of people and the fulfillment of our our basic human rights. Mm. And I think that's why the Constitution wasn't enough. We needed the 14th Amendment to provide us equal protection. And that wasn't enough. A hundred years later, we needed the Civil Rights Act. And that has not been enough to protect people from being killed on the streets from by law enforcement mm-hmm. or to protect uh, migrants from being subjected to violence by border agents, right? And so where I am now, and I, my own thinking has evolved around this, is that the Constitution is not enough. The Constitution is a floor, it's not a ceiling, and it is not enough to to defend somebody's rights based on a proclaimed constitutional mm. statement. We need to reach higher, and that's led me to reach to human rights, to international human rights, which are much more expansive, to reach to the universal truths that we know to be self-evident, yeah, yeah. that we are um, that we are due <laughs> uh, dignity and respect just by virtue of being human. Mm. Just by virtue of being who we are. We don't need to earn it. We don't need to uh, be granted it, but we do need to claim it. Right, right. Yeah. No, that's so well put. And I want to shift a little because I can keep going on and on my excitement for lawyering and (laughs) how things work and all this stuff is something I can talk about. Yeah, courtroom drama for hours. So, in leading up to this interview, I did talk to some people. I did a little bit of research, and I was told that probably one of your best attributes is formalizing and mm. organizing. Like you're you're like a master at it. Like you 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 really understand how to bring people and organizations together, which is very very important to actually get things done. Mm. So do you know if you had to say where that comes from or if that Mm. comes from someone or just Mm -hmm. your life experience? Because that's not an easy thing to do, dealing with human beings. Well, I'm glad whoever (laughs) you spoke to had uh, had that view of me. Uh, Well, you know, I think I've always been a problem solver. Mm -hmm. And before I uh, went into law, I thought about engineering. And so I, I have a mind that. Um, seeks 
to solve problems. And so I think I organize things. I look for uh, how to solve for X, like in an algebra equation, you know, you're trying to solve for X. And in fact, there were civil rights organizers uh, that used to say that civil rights, the civil rights fight is a, is one giant algebra equation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's a little bit more than that, but I think that, uh, I had some good mentors along the way, um, who were well organized. I, I, I remember reading, uh, about, um, SNCC and, uh, the, in the, during the civil rights era. And I, I spent actually two weeks after I finished uh, my master's degree in, in public policy, and I spent those two weeks reading the three tomes of Taylor Branch, which were about the civil rights movement, mainly about Dr. King, but also about SNCC. And um, I was just, I was just a sponge absorbing all the lessons learned about how you organize people, what motivates people, and how you, and what are the, the dangers of of organizing, um, and and then I think I I added in my my newly found lawyering skills to construct memorandums of agreement. That's my thing. Like, what mm. are points of unity? Let's write them down. What are the playground rules? Let's write them down so that we don't have to fight about the process and we can get to doing the work so that we have shared decision making, um, and everybody knows how that's going to go, and we have a way of of deciding who leadership is and then turning that leadership over so that we're all sharing in that leadership. Mm. Um, yeah. That's all super important to, yeah. to movement very, very building, important. right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, I, if I could share one other thing. Abs yeah, I mean, I, I think I think about movements like rivers. Like what? Rivers. Oh, okay. Movements mm -hmm. are like rivers. And everybody has a role in that river. Um, some people are are uh, shaping that river. Some people are adding uh, water to that river. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and so I think leadership plays a role in steering some of that work. But there's no—a river is made up of, of lots of different droplets of water. And in a movement, you have to recognize that— um, you, there is no river without all of those droplets. And right, yeah. if you are asserting an organizing role mm -hmm. or a leadership role or a fundraising role, that uh, you're part of this larger movement and recognizing all the parts. And, um, you know, it, it, you do need some level of organization so that the river stays right. channeled right. to uh, to reach some sort of impact. Right, but... Once again, it takes such a skill set to do that because you're dealing with so many different kinds of people from different walks of life. And sometimes people don't want to budge on certain things. So where do you, you know, you have to find places to compromise here, mm -hmm. but make up for it here. It's just right. so much that goes into it. So absolutely, I think I'm, I'm just trying to say I, I really appreciate that you have the temperament mm to be able to handle those things mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, you are getting things done. So mm. we could just, we can go back and forth about mm -hmm. techniques and methods, Yeah, but you are getting it done. Ah, well, I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah because I mean, you're, you, you know, you got, you're, you're, you're in it. You're in, in the it. trenches. 
I'm in it. Nowhere else but in it. You are absolutely <laughs> in it. So one thing I wanted to ask you as well is over the years, I've come to know a couple judges. Mm -hmm. I know uh, beat cops, detectives, people who have worked for the district attorney mm -hmm. and just various lawyers. Mm -hmm. And a thing that has always made me just frustrated is that it seems sometimes it's about winning and losing mm. for your party or mm -hmm. your group. Mm -hmm. And what gets lost is the people or mm -hmm. the person on trial. And I've seen it on both sides. Sure. It's not just a prosecution thing. Sure. Uh, like I've seen a defense lawyer know that their client did what they did, mm -hmm. but they just still want to win. Right. It's this scorekeeping thing. Mm -hmm. So how do you balance not falling into that scorekeeping thing? It just reminds me of The Wire. <laughs> you know, they, they call it juking the stats. Uh -huh. Right? It's how, you know, you move up in the ranks. Right, right. And, and that just seems like a very flawed system. Right. If you, if you play that game. Absolutely. And it's easy to fall into it. And I, and I, I have succumbed, right, to, mm -hmm. uh, to winning because your ego is wrapped up in, in the winning, right? But I think there's a difference between individual representation and um, high stakes lawyering, which is more of what I do now. Mm -hmm. So when you're in an individual case, um, you, ha you are duty bound to fight like hell for your client, no matter what. No matter what you know about your client, you're duty bound to fight for that client, mm -hmm. and that's what you do. Right. And uh, and then of course your ego's wrapped up in it. Um, but movement lawyering, or uh, high impact lawyering, is a little bit different because the the cases that you're fighting are um, you, they are vehicles to move a larger agenda. They are vehicles to move hopefully transformational change. And uh, so there's a, it's more than a you and a them. There's a third body involved. And that third body is, is the, the transformation that you seek. And you, you may get it out of one particular case mm -hmm. because it's, it's set up right. It's got the right set of facts to move the policy change. Um, but it might not be. You might have to, to go to another another kind of a case. You think about a case like Brown v. Board of Education. Mm -hmm. yeah, that wasn't just one case. That was the culmination of a whole lot of cases, uh, strategy, uh, cases that came after to build on that legacy. Uh, so that's what I'm involved in now. And I, 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 my ego, the older I get, there's less <laughs> ego involved. <laughs> <laughs> because it's just, yeah, you know, yeah. it's not what I'm in it for anymore. Right. I, I Maybe at the beginning when I was young, I wanted I, I wanted to help people and I wanted to win. Absolutely. Um, then right, that's part right. of the drive. Yeah. And yeah. Th that's how you get crazy lawyers. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, <laughs> but that passion, sometimes you need that to have that passion right. to drive you through some really difficult times. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so let's dive into this today, what you're doing today. I'm so excited to, to dive into it and talk about some of the major, major cases and families and people that you're dealing with. But before we get right into that, was there a case 
early on that shifted kind of your ideology or your thoughts on the system and how it's run? Like, were you fighting for somebody who you knew just needed this little extra something Mm -hmm. and they would be okay, but the system didn't allow it? Did that Mm -hmm. happen early on with you? It sure did. I was uh, year one lawyering, and uh, I had several young clients come to me who were in high school who were undocumented, and as bright as they were, as involved as they were, as big as the dreams they had were, there was uh, nothing in the law that would allow them to stay because they were undocumented. Mm -hmm. and. It was when I first came to realize that the best you can do as a courtroom attorney is to interpret the law, and what we really needed to do was change the law. And that's when I migrated out of the the day-to-day courtroom attorney work and into more of the policy advocacy work. Mm. Yeah, and you haven't looked back since. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so let's uh, let's tackle some of the recent stuff that you've been dealing with. Uh, I think starts with uh, May twenty eighth, two thousand ten. So I'll just hand it over to you yes. with that date. Thank and you. T- and tell us about that. What a fateful day! On that day, Anastasio Hernandez Rojas, a longtime San Diego resident was attempting to uh, come back into the United States after having been deported. Um, He had five citizen children and a wife here. And like many, he was undocumented and he didn't have a pathway to get documented. His children weren't old enough to petition him. Mm -hmm. And um, he came across police at the local convenience store. They had... uh, Back in the day, this was more prevalent. We've been able to stop this. But back in the day, police would hand folks who were undocumented off to Border Patrol, even though they weren't charging them for anything. They would hand them off, and that's what police did. They char- they handed him off to Border Patrol, and he was deported immediately. So just for clarity, the convenience store on what side? Here? Oh, yeah, in the United States, okay. yes. So okay. the... The way Anastasio got to the other side of the border was okay. because he had been stopped at a convenience store uh, by police mm-hmm. who um, asked him what his status was. When they learned he didn't have any, they passed him off to Border Patrol, oh, okay. who then deported okay. him. Yep. But because he had a family here, his whole life was here. He had been here since he was a teenager. He's he's our age. Mm-hmm. Uh, he our, was our, our yep. age. He... Um, he attempted to, to walk back, and so he walked back, and he was apprehended by border agents who uh, described him as not like the other migrants. He looked me in the eye. He spoke up. He asserted his rights. Uh, these were the things that you could describe as asserting his dignity, but the officers or the agents took every single one of these actions as a threat and abused him as a result. They used force against him. So when they said he um, he looked me in the eye, that particular agent then swept his legs out, mm-hmm. re-injured a, a prior injury he had in his legs, and um, and then when he asked, he asserted his right to medical attention. They uh, responded by taking him down to the port of entry, 
and uh, attempting to to deport him again, um, first attempting to to beat him into submission um, while he was asserting his rights. So I, I say about Anastasio that he died because he asserted his dignity. They beat him. They tased him. Ultimately, they, after tasing him for nearly a minute straight, mm-hmm. uh, they kneeled on his neck, much like with George Floyd, uh, until he stopped breathing. And I describe that as, as uh, chapter one. I, I should say, just to paint the complete picture, he was hogtied face down. They took, they had taken his pants off, um, I presume to humiliate him. All of this happened in front of passersby because it happened right at the port of entry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It happened on the U.S. side of the, the border in the port of entry. And that was the end of chapter one. And chapter two began as soon as he stopped breathing. The agents went up onto the old pedestrian bridge that used to be there at yeah. the port of entry. And mm-hmm. they, they, uh, they approached the, 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 um, eyewitnesses and they erased their videos. And then they dispersed wow. them. And there was young, one young brave woman who pocketed her cell phone. She had taken video and she walked away and she called me the next day and she said, I just, I witnessed a murder and I have she this. She called you the next day? She called day? me the next day and I have this video, um, but I'm wow. too afraid to show it to anyone because if they could do that, if agents, federal agents could do that in front of many people, kill a man. What are they going to do to me? I am. She was early twenties, mm-hmm. young woman, and uh, and she she was too afraid to come forward, and so she would call every couple months. How's that case going? Um, I said, well, it's not going anywhere because you know it's their word against every <laughs> yeah. against uh, nobody's really right, right. And I and I would say, well, you know, ten more people have been killed by border agents. She'd call again. Now it's up to twenty more. She'd call again, uh, 40, 50, 60. The number kept climbing. I said, we don't have video in any of these cases. Right. But we do in this case. You have a, the chance to to set things right. So two years later, she did come forward with that video. Um, and it, it countered everything that the border agents had said. They had lied. They had said Anastasia was standing up. He was aggressive. There were only two agents involved when the video showed that there were 17. And um, despite this video emerging, the police department did not reopen the investigation. And uh, and so he ultimately was, the, the agents ultimately were not prosecuted. Uh, and because they were not prosecuted, because the domestic uh, criminal justice system failed to deliver accountability. They denied access to this family. We pursued an international mm-hmm. avenue, which was before the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. Right, right. And so the U.S. border agents, those are government officials of the United States, right? That's right. And so I was reading, and it, it just blew me away, and I just needed to um, bring this up to you, is... Uh, it says, um, where's it at? This was the first ever hearing on excessive use of force involving the U.S. government. First ever? First ever. This is it. In, before the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. 
There have been a lot of other wow. kinds of cases, but this is the first case of excessive force before this commission. And, you know, it's the, the, the commission is much like the Supreme Court. They only take a few cases. Yeah. And uh, we were very pleased when they took this case. Um, they, this is the commission that has heard cases about ethnic genocide in other countries, about um, war crimes in other countries. Uh, they, their bread and butter is looking at the issue of excessive force um, or Ayotzinapa killings in Mexico, mm-hmm. the massacre. Uh, their bread and butter is to look at the excessive force by state governments. This is the first time they'll be doing so with the United States government. We had a hearing on the case in November. We're now awaiting decision. The case, because it's a landmark case, will set the precedent for all the other cases that come behind it. Um, you know, the kinds of cases that that are behind us are the case of Oscar Grant, Eric Gardner, mm-hmm. uh, the cases of men and women and children, mostly black and brown, who have been killed by law enforcement at every level of law enforcement in the United States. This is the first time the commission is examining the use of force standard in the United States which is which is fatally low, uh, which allows law enforcement to use lethal force if they find it to be objectively reasonable. That is not the international human rights standard. The international human rights standard requires uh, law enforcement to only use force when it is necessary and proportionate. The United States standard is an outlier. It doesn't mm, conform yeah, with yeah. our, with the rest of the world and with our international obligations. Imagine in the George Floyd case, for example, or more recently Tyree Nichols or mm-hmm. Breonna Taylor, if the question wasn't, uh, was it reasonable, but rather was it necessary and proportionate? Right. Um, we got lucky with George Floyd that because of the movement on the streets, mm-hmm. The, uh, the the case was prosecuted at all and that, you know, a jury found that it was not reasonable. But nine out of ten times, yeah. they'll find that it was reasonable. And right. until and unless we change that, that standard and change the question that we're asking, we're going to continue to see um, law enforcement officers getting away with murder, literally. Right, right. And that's what I learned so much in doing research for this was this whole standard of mm. force and how it's looked at throughout the world and how the standard is so different here. Mm-hmm. And I don't think a lot of people really know that. That's right. I, I, I was just floored when I was reading all the research and the, the stats and the documents about the different standards. Mm-hmm. And your, you and your organization and all the people around you, you are actually trying to change the standard. That's right. Is that correct? That is absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, it's about time. Yeah. We need to change it. It's not accidental that no border agent, zero border agents in the last 100 years have ever been uh, accounted for, uh, accountable for killing somebody. None have been convicted. Few have been prosecuted. And in that same period, Still, only a handful of police officers 
have been convicted for killing somebody. And that's that's not by accident. That's by design. That's because of the low use of force standard. It is possible for us to change it. This case could be the impetus for that. Uh, but we don't need to wait for a decision. We can move the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act at the in Congress, right? Or change it at the state level or even the local level. Uh, it, it's not just the right thing to do. It's our legal obligation. We've signed tr- treaties it, it's saying that we would do this, and we just simply haven't. And so, this is like a great example of the Constitution is a floor here not a ceiling, because the whole way we got to the objectively reasonable standard was an interpretation of the Constitution, which falls short to protect life. Right. Yeah, exactly. And was it this woman who reached out to you? Is that the main reason that you are actually involved in this, or would this have come to you anyway just through your work in general? Or would it just taken a lot yeah. longer? So I, um, a sister organization of ours, the American Friends Service Committee, uh, who we work hand in hand with, uh, we and they became aware of the incident uh, almost as soon as it happened. And so uh, they began accompanying the family because Anastasio was a member of the community. He was a known member of the community. He died with a Know Your Rights pamphlet in his in his in his clothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the AFSC began to accompany the family and invite us invited us in, and we came in, and we've been accompanying the family ever since. And so um, it was the convergence of the eyewitness who contacted me the following day and the uh and the family uh coming into contact as well to be able to help them um as best we could which has led us to this moment and you know the family has taught me a tremendous amount about what it means to accompany people through trauma and tragedy over a long period of time to have the the stamina to do that is unique and extraordinary mm. And so from your point of view, obviously, you're trying to get justice for Anastasio, for his family. What are some of the other things that you're trying to get to besides just the obvious justice part? Right. And so this case uh, is a great example of a high impact case. It's not just about Anastasio. It's about changing the whole system. It's about transforming everything. Mm -hmm. And this is the best way to tell the story. Anastasio's case is the anatomy of abuse and impunity. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, we're seeking policy changes. And so um, that we absolutely would like to see this case reopened, the investigation reopened, agents held to account. Uh, but uh, just as importantly, we want to see Congress pass laws that change the use of force standard that prevent border agents from investigating themselves because they were on the ground and involved in the investigation, and that's deeply problematic. Um, it, we would like to see a law that actually prohibits torture. We don't have one in the United States, as shocking as that is. Wow. Uh, we, we're quick to talk about torture outside of the country, but not here. And, and you know, that's the work of bringing human rights home. 
That's the work about, you know, saying everything that we've agreed to and committed to and talk about externally needs to apply here internally. Right, right. In every situation, every tragedy, every major event like this has multiple pieces, multiple parts to the story. You have taken a deep dive into the family, the video, witnesses. I'm just curious, from their perspective, what exactly are they saying? The family or the government? The government. The government. The government. The government uh, sticks to this idea that Anastasio was aggressive. They assert that um, it's tragedy that he died, but it's not their fault. And they used the force that was reasonable to subdue him. They point to external factors that could have caused his death. Uh, he had um, some heart undiagnosed heart conditions. Uh, they claim he um, was on meth, um, even though the medication in the hospital that he was taking could have been what registered him as on meth. He was not a meth user. Um, so, you know, they, they're making excuses and... Uh, if if you see the video of what he looked like in uh, in the hospital, how they left him, it's hard to argue that he died any other way except for the the tasering, the the contusions, the beating, the abrasions. Um, he was he was left beaten, mm. and. He was definitely unarmed. Nobody's debating that. No, Even no, on the government no, no, side, no, no, right? No. They're not saying he had something, he went for something, we found no. this. None of that, right? No, no, no. They, it's really a stretch for them to say that, um, that he was being aggressive. I mean, the video refutes it. Unfortunately, right. the, the police investigation was never reopened. Mm -hmm. So the police investigation stands and the, that investigation stated that he was the aggressor. Uh, I think, I, I mean, this, these are really systemic issues, right? Like the, yeah. if you look at the police report, um, it, it says suspect Anastasio, victim, border agent X, Y, and Z. And that is not uncommon in a, in a police involved uh, use of force incident where they will name the suspect as the victim, and they will reverse the roles. Right, yeah. And so from the beginning, that was, this was a homicide. Mm -hmm. This was a homicide. The medical examiner declared this was death by another hand. This was not a natural cause. The police opened it up as a homicide investigation, and the victim of the homicide investigation, who did not die, didn't even go to the hospital, right. is, uh, were... Agents X, right. Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And the suspect in this homicide investigation was Anastasio. And that is the norm. Mm. And that is the norm. So do we have a problem with how law enforcement and the criminal justice system holds law enforcement accountable? Absolutely we do. Right. Yeah. And what was the official cause of death? 
uh, his, uh, his heart stopped. There's a medical term for it. I know it in Spanish. Infarto. <laughs> <laughs> uh, his, yes, heart attack. His heart stopped, which is, in fact, what had happened. Right, right. Yeah. So this has been going on for a while. I'm sure you've exerted so much time and energy into this, you know, which is second nature to you anyways. I'm wondering along the way, have you come across people on the government side, whether it's a prosecutor, beat cop, just different people who have talked to you off the record and just told you to your face that was wrong? Yes, we have. So the head of internal affairs for uh, Customs and Border Protection, CBP, the the agency that uh, holds the border agents, the head of that, his name is Jim Tomshek, he was at the helm of internal affairs when the incident happened. And he saw what was going on, the lying, the fabrication, the manipulation, the cover-up. He ended up leaving the agency as a whistleblower several years later, uh, um, not not because of that, but because of a, a pattern of cover-up at the agency. And uh, we connected with him a, a few, shortly after he left the agency, and he said to us flat out that they lied. And um, he, mm. he prepared a declaration to that effect, an 18-page long de- declaration to that effect that was included in the filings that we submitted to the Inter-American Commission. Mm. Well, that must give you, I don't know, some sense of, yeah, I, I know. Thank you. And, and to keep fighting. That's right. When you hear that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, that's right. I think when you have a high-level government official uh, tell you that you're right, that things are wrong here, things are um, deeply problematic here, uh, and he wasn't the only one. There were other officials, high-level officials that came forward. It certainly strengthened the case vindicated the family, and was cause for us to keep going. Mm, Wow. You know, when I was reading about this and and seeing your one of your goals about actually making change through policy, Mm -hmm. you know, I interviewed uh, a guy I met through a friend, and he had done, I think, somewhere around 12 to 15 years in prison, and he changed his life, turned everything around. And he, when he got out, he started a movement called uh, End Perpetual Punishment. Mm. And he worked with the mayor mm-hmm. and did all this stuff and actually got policy mm-hmm. changed. I mean, it was, he, he fought really, really hard. Mm-hmm. And his whole point was, I shouldn't have to suffer for the rest of my life because I made a mistake and I did my time. Right. And I mean, he's doing incredible work in the community. He lives in uh, Brooklyn. Oh, wow. Yeah, just just phenomenal work. And uh-huh. Every day, every day working on this. Because as you know, I mean, you, you got to be built for this kind of work. <laughs> right. you can't, this isn't like a little part-time thing. You know <laughs> right, what I mean? Right, like right, I right. work a nine to five and let me see if I can do some policy stuff on the weekends. Right, it's, right. It's, it takes everything. That's and, right. And, you know, and people have families. Right. And children and, and 
you know, some people want to watch the game. <laughs> right? So I hear. So yeah, I hear. Yeah. But so did these victims. Sure. They want sure. to play soccer with their kids. Yeah. You know, they want to go to parties and hang out, barbecue on the weekends. That's right. They want to do all that. Yeah. And I, I you know, I would say that these are fellow travelers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're all after, at the end of the day, we're all after the same thing. Mm-hmm. Our humanity and our dignity. Right. We're going at it from different places. We're, um, you know, serving different constituents, um, accompanying different kinds of families. But we're all going after the same thing, which is that universal truth in the Declaration of Independence. Right. That the self-evident truth that all of us um, have the inalienable right to life, liberty and pursuit of happiness. Right. And our struggle right. since has been to make that true. Right. And so as an immigration lawyer, and we'll wrap this up uh, soon here, I want to ask you, because there's just so much political jargon around legal, illegal, Mm -hmm. all these made-up words. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't believe the word alien Alien, is still actually a word. (laughs) Even when I was young, that made no sense to me. It just didn't make any sense. But, and people go back and forth on what Mm -hmm. they think it should look like. Mm-hmm. So from your perspective, how does a system work for you mm-hmm. that would make sense for people coming into the country or documenting people or arresting people who didn't follow the guidelines? Just that whole system for you, what does that look like? Well, that's a million-dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> I think there should be pathways to citizenship for uh, folks who want to come. And right now we don't have pathways. We have a broken immigration system. You know, uh, historically we've had uh, a limited pathway for family members, limited pathway for workers and limited pathway for people seeking asylum, seeking humanitarian protection. In none of those categories is our immigration system working. We have outdated visa caps uh, that are intended to maintain a, um, a racial balance in this country uh, that don't accord with our uh, relationships to our neighbors to the south. Um, We just, in every single way, the system is broken. So we have 11 million people here without a pathway. Who've The average length of time they've been here is over 10 years. Uh, You know, my own family has, has been a part of that population. And it's kind of ridiculous. So I think... Just like, you know, solving for X and the civil rights movement, Mm -hmm. it's an algebra equation that we can figure out if we were politically willing to do so. And I think that right now there are a lot of folks who benefit from hate-mongering and othering, and that's what's going on. But can we solve this this issue and create a humane and um, practical immigration system? Uh, that allows for people to find a pathway here or come temporarily. I mean, it used to be that 
people came and, and left um, because they didn't they didn't want to leave forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wanted to come and work and then go back home. But in you know in the Clinton era, um, there were penalties imposed for going back and forth, and oh, so okay. people just stayed. So right, right. you know, part of the challenges are challenges of our own making because we've we've locked people in. And we're trying to keep people out, but the natural organic flow of humans is something else. Right. Yeah. No, it's 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 so true. But I, I, I like your point about this equation can mm-hmm. be dealt with mm-hmm. if you get the right people in the room with the right state of mind mm-hmm. and just some compassion. Yeah, let's that just would, start that with would that. Really help. Wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Let's start there. Yeah, yeah. Even if we don't come to the same end result, right? Mm-hmm. If we still have some compassion about the whole thing and not forget that we're dealing with actual real people. Right. You know, but I think that mentality helps in pretty much everything across the board. Sure does. Yeah, yeah. So the last thing I want to ask you about is this letter. Mm. So your organization, which you can also talk about Alliance mm-hmm. San Diego recently wrote a letter to President Biden. Mm-hmm. Right. And we don't have to go into the entire thing, but I did highlight a part where you're talking about, you know, getting them the changing the standard changes the question. Was the force necessary and proportionate? The heightened standard honors the dignity of life. That's just one little piece from the letter. But could you just talk about how this letter came to be? Yes. So Alliance San Diego is uh, working hard to build the collective power to create a more inclusive democracy, one where everyone can exercise their dignity. And uh, for us, that means honoring life, protecting life. And until and unless we can change the use of force standard, um, we're not going to be in a position to do that. And so we decided, well, you know what? We're going to write the president. And this mm-hmm. is America. Mm-hmm. We're going to write the president, and we're going to tell him on the eve of his State of the Union address, we're going to tell him that we think, we believe that the why of a democracy is dignity. That's what we have a democracy for. A democracy is just a form of government. Um, but why do we care about that form of government? Because that is the one that we hope delivers our uh, self-evident truths, our inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Um, and so until and unless we, we can change the use of force standard, we can't ever really protect the life uh, and the dignity of our communities and we knew he was going to be bringing yeah. the family of Tyree Nichols yep. to the State of the Union. And we knew he was going to give lip service to um, policing reform. Mm-hmm. And this is not something we should dabble around the edges at. We need to we need to recognize the moment we're in. We're in a moment of national reckoning around the issue of police abuse and, and impunity. Right. And we right. need to make transformational changes. And this should be chief among them, changing the use of force standard. Yeah. And do you think you'll get any response from the White House at all from just 
a part of the White House, a part of his staff or his, his group at all? We sure hope so, but we're not going to stop with the letter. The letter is just the beginning. The yeah. letter was us really coming out this year um, with our mission to change the use of force standard. And, you know, we'll be headed to Washington, D.C. in a few weeks. We'll be visiting with members of Congress and we'll be telling them the same thing, that it's time to change the use of force standard. It's time to change the question. Uh, we're awaiting a decision from the Inter-American Commission on Anastasio's case, and that will help help uh, determine the answer to that question. But everywhere we go this year, we're going to, to push policymakers and community at large to think about what that question should be. We're going to be elevating and claiming and protecting our human rights and our human dignity. But you, you said something that, um, that was really important, that people don't know, right? Mm -hmm. People don't know about the use of force standard. They don't know about what's going on. And I think community uh, education, socializing the idea of, of what dignity means or what it should mean to all of us is really important. We cannot claim what we do not know, right? We have to know um, or believe that we have dignity, yeah. that all of us yeah. have dignity in order to claim it. Yeah. And once we know it, and more specifically, once we know that the United States has committed to use of force standards that are much higher than what is actually in place, once we know that the universal truth is that no one should have the power to take life, liberty, or property right. without um, without that being absolutely necessary and proportionate, right. I yeah. mean, to your to your colleague's uh, point about ending perpetual punishment. Mm -hmm. That's not necessary or proportionate, right. right? Yeah. There's a higher calling that we're answering to, and that is uh, the these universal truths of dignity. Mm. And just uh, to add a little, some extra, you know, I know your father passed. We mm. talked about your father early mm -hmm. in the episode. I knew your father. I used mm -hmm. to see him at random jazz shows downtown. Yeah. Amazing guy. How proud would he be of his daughter out here making all this good trouble? Oh, well, <laughs> I like to think he's he's riding alongside. Um, yeah, I think he would be very proud. I think, you know, uh, <clears throat> he would he would say, you know, uh, go daughter. Yeah. Miha. You're doing the right thing. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. so cool. And, the, you know, it's so interesting because I've always known that you were involved in a certain way. Mm -hmm. But, you know, kind of leading up to this made me do more research and mm -hmm. more reading and looking into things. And it just it just makes me more excited to see all of the things you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I feel a connection, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I've watched your son grow since mm -hmm. a little boy. And I think my daughter might've babysat him yeah, at one point did. when he was little. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that connection and he's, you know, adult now. Uh -huh. And I've known your husband for probably over 25 years. So, and my daughter worked for Alliance right. of San Diego at one point. So I, I just feel, uh, you know, this whole connection and, I'm just so glad that this part of your life and story is going to come out to more people mm. 
And the story of Anastasio is going to get out to more people. And this use of force stuff is going to, you know, it's going to resonate with so many mm. people and cause people to do more homework and more research and ultimately maybe get involved. So mm. I just thank you so much for everything that you're doing. And I always find it interesting when I interview people like you and I realize there's people like you all over mm. in just little pockets mm-hmm. that people just don't know about, mm-hmm. right? Just because you're not on CNN or any network doesn't mean that you're not doing the work Mm -hmm, and you've mm -hmm. been doing the work Mm. for a long time so Mm -hmm. thank you so much thank you Anthony no I appreciate it we've known each other a long time long time uh this was a real pleasure thanks thanks for this platform thanks for elevating all these voices Mm -hmm. um to help tell these stories all right peace peace A long way from the block.